0: It's good to see you all this afternoon. done a lot of reflecting over my life in the last several weeks and months. And you know, my dad was 43 years old when I, when I was born and my mother was 30. <laughs> but they knew a lot of older people and it seems like a lot of my friends were among the older people of the church and the community because they seemed to circulate among the older people more. So all my life I felt very comfortable around older people. I've gone to visit in the hospital, I visited them homes, and I visited them in every kind of place and read scripture to them, tried to encourage them, tried to be a blessing to them, tried to show them their worth in the eyes of God as long as he left them here. And all of a sudden I woke up a couple of years ago and realized that I was preaching to myself all those years. I wonder how effective I was. You know, we all have needs at different points in our lives, different kinds of needs. I'd like to talk to you about that in relationship to communion today. If you'll see the connection, I think. What's your need this afternoon as you as we gather around this communion table? What is your need this afternoon? Now, of course, the communion table is a picture of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross that that gave us our salvation. But if you'll excuse all the trappings that go with the term in the health world, it's it's a holistic thing. It involves much more than just not going to hell. Right? Much more than that. And especially in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, we're not in Isaiah as the preacher told you when he closed this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 5, if you'll turn there, especially in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about some aspects of Christ's life and death and ascension to the right hand of the Father. You can leave that there for now. I'll give you the word. Uh, An ascension that, that there was much involved in his life that affects us that goes, not, not that it wasn't probably the, the pinnacle, the salvation that comes from going to be in heaven with the Lord forever, but there's much more, much, much more, to the life of Christ than that. And, and in Hebrews, the author, whoever he was, is trying to bring that out to us in these verses. Uh, I'm planning to preach the next time I have time for a regular sermon on this whole section here, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. But Stephen asked me to, uh, to lead a devotional this afternoon, and uh, I want to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. 7, 8, and 9. If you'll take your Bibles and look there with me. Who, Jesus being referred to, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. I want to look particularly at verses 8 and 9, but verse 7 sets the context. Who in the days of his flesh That was the days of his incarnation, the days of his life on earth as a man. In the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with strong trying and tears, and we'll talk about that more sometime in the future, him that was able to to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Not that he feared death. He was heard because he feared God wait a minute, how can the son fear the father? Well, there was that perfect, that perfect unity of love and respect between the persons in the Godhead. And Jesus exemplified in his life the kind of attitude that we should have toward God in his relationship with his father. Well, we'll talk more about that another time too. Now look at the next verse. This next verse I just never have felt like I got my hands around it, my heart around it, but I think I'm a little closer now than I have been in the past. It says though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. That phrase there, though he were the, the phrase actually he learned learned he obedience by the things which he suffered was a, not a new revelation to uh, the writer of Hebrews. Actually, it was almost a proverb in the Greek culture. The Greek culture had a saying, he learned from what he suffered. So much so that it had even worked out to be a bit of a linguistic jingle. A linguistic jingle, kind of like poetry. And when you read it in the, re- in the Greek, it said, naphon epatha, Amatha pathon had a little bit of a rhyme, a little bit of rhythm to it. And it was recited often among peoples. And it so happens in this particular case, it's not always the case, but in this particular case, it was a divine truth. And it was inscripturated here in Hebrews. And it says that we, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. So I want to talk to you about the days of his flesh. And how can the holy, eternal, infinite God learn anything? How can he learn anything? That always puzzled me. Uh, What does it mean, though he were a son? Well, let's look at that phrase, though he were a son, first. Uh, It always seemed a little bit strange to me about that phrase, though he were a son. It's almost like it's an axiom. In in other words, all sons, not just this son of God, but all sons uh, learn by suffering. The book of Hebrews, the writer, emphasizes this a little bit later on. If you turn a few chapters forward and come to chapter 12, you'll see what it says. Come Consider him, verse 3, that endureth such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and fade in your minds. He says here, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It's normal for a son to learn through suffering. The Lord will chasten you when you go astray to teach you like a parent. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers in our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather and be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? In other words, uh, in a normal home, good father chastens his children. And in a world where God is active and alive, where he's working among his children, he chastens his children. That brings sorrow. That brings pain sometimes. However, in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, that certainly is not a parallel. It's it's kind of a a, a negative type because Jesus never did anything to be chastised for, did he? No, he didn't. But we'll, we'll, we'll develop that thought a little bit more in a second. But before I go on, let me just say this. In the Greek language, <coughs> and there is no indefinite article. In other words, it, it, there is no word in the Greek language for a, though he were a son. Now, if the translators had translated, though he were son, we English people would say, well, that doesn't make sense. There needs to be an a in there. That's right. That's why it's there. But actually, the, what's trying to be communicated to here is... It, what's trying to be communicated here to us is, though he were son speaking of the quality of his person. If we say, though he were God, as opposed to though he were a God, do you see the difference? And the same is true here. Though he were son, in other words, though he was the son of God, though he was God, yet he, as God, learned through pain and suffering. Though he were a son, though he were God, God is the son of God, yet learned he obedience by the things which he experienced. One might put it this way that is to say, son of God though he was, even he was granted no exemption from the common law that learning comes by suffering. How did he suffer? You know, we we think of the Lord as being uh, complete and infinite in all His attributes—all knowing, omniscient, all powerful, omnipotent—and so it's hard for us to comprehend. It's hard for it's hard for me to comprehend how, in this particular area, He could not be complete. I mean, you would think that even though He hadn't actually experienced it, that because He created us and cause he was responsible for all these things that happened that'd be the same as if he experienced it in other words he understand the experience of what was happening to his children i mean i would have thought that but the scripture says no the scripture says no he became incarnate and in doing so he learned he learned through suffering He experienced suffering. There is something about actually experiencing suffering that is different from just knowing, even intimately, about suffering. And when Jesus took on flesh and blood, he took on the necessity of suffering. And he learned by it. And that was to our great benefit, not just our deliverance from hell, but in this life, looking to his life and seeing how he qualified himself to be remembered at this table and qualified himself to be a minister to us all. There are about three or four different ways we can look at the idea of his having learned to be obedient by the things which he suffered. The first one is this. The Lord felt the weakness of the flesh in his whole vicarious work, and though personally spotless, he learned the feeling of weakness. As he took flesh for an official purpose, which was to come and die for our sins. He submitted to the consequences following in the train of sin bearing. Now, he did not suffer because of his own sin. We we don't actually read anywhere of Jesus being sick or anything like that. He was not under Adam's curse, the covenant of Adam's curse. He was not cursed as other mankind was. He was virgin born. That's part of the idea there but he was living among an accursed people, and he would be the substitute of those accursed people on the cross when he died. And so as he walked on this earth, even though he may not have experienced particularly the the aspects of of being a part of the, the fall of Adam, he was living among all people, all he had created people, who were under the curse of Adam and he experienced the things they experienced. He experienced living in the flesh. In fact, as he pursued the cross, there were some things that came upon him that wouldn't have come upon him if he had not had his face set for the cross. He was one who hungered and thirsted. He hungered and thirsted. God does not hunger and thirst. He was fatigued in the sweat of his brow. Well, the Psalms assure us that the Lord looks over us the day and night and he never grows tired. He never runs out of energy or sweats. He, paid, he faced persecution and injustice. God never faced any persecution or injustice in heaven. He was arrested. He suffered. He took wounds. He took death. He spent the night in a cold cellar prison in Caiaphas' house. I stood there. Room, maybe 15 feet around, deep, probably hung by his hands part of the time. That wasn't because anything he did. That's because when he came to be the substitute for our sins, he suffered the penalties, the things of this world that we deserve. They were put on him, though he was innocent, and he took them, and through those experiences, he learned obedience. He learned about obedience, what it was like to obey, because all of that He was obeying his Father's will as he pursued the cross, and these things would come upon him because they were an inevitable part of pursuing the cross. Another short explanation I thought was very helpful. Omniscience knows everything. Perfect sympathy feels everything. Christ did not need to learn any information when he came to earth. He was omniscient, all-knowing. But he chose to participate in men's feelings personally so he'd also be sympathetic and all-feeling. And we know that God is emotional. But can God apply that emotion in such a way that he can identify with us? I listened to Stephen's preaching, Pastor Wesco, this morning about Ezekiel. Did the Lord really understand what he's putting that man through? Can you imagine? I, I, by, by the grace of God, he did all that. Can you, can you imagine doing that? I mean, think, oh, that was back then. It, it was, those kind of things were not so screwy back then. Oh, yes, they were. You could do crazy things back then in your culture just like you can today. Maybe not have the media there to tell everybody that you're, you're a right-wing crazy person. But he sure looked crazy. He sure did some strange things. Oh, it would be awful. Culminated with his wife dying and he's not supposed to grieve over her. That's a lot to ask. But when God became a man... And the Son of God became incarnate and lived a life upon this earth. He experienced those kinds of things that he had asked of his prophets and his people all through history. They became a part of his background, they became a part of him. And he became an all feeling God, having actually felt and experienced the kind of things that in his providence he had allowed others to experience in the course of life. He, thirdly, is the eternal son. The eternal son, think about it now, the eternal son in heaven with his father from all eternity past, he never knew experientially what subjection meant until he became a man. From the moment when he assumed humanity, he entered into new experiences, and he who had always commanded learned practically what obedience meant. We learned to be obedient because of the unpleasant consequences which followed disobedience. Not so with him. He learned to be obedient because of, the, because of the consequences of pursuing God's will that necessarily involved all these sufferings because of the way people reacted to him as he pursued God's will, which was a good thing, and he was doing good things all along the way. And in spite of all the good things he's done, the Pharisees hate him. They spit in his face. They struck his brow. They couldn't stand him. That wasn't because he did something bad and God was disciplined. That was because he was aiming to do something good and that was the path of doing that good thing. He learned by the sufferings which came his way in consequence just what obedience to God involved in practice in the conditions of human life on earth he experienced it he lived through it this is also referred to in that very familiar verse philippians 2 who being in the form of god thought it not robbery to be equal with god but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He didn't, when he found himself to be a man, say, "Oh, wait a minute, this is going to be a tough row. I'm going to have to do some adjustments with my, my godly powers to make it a little bit smoother ride. He took it as it come, like you and I would have to take it. Whatever came his way as he pursued God's plan, and that's where his eyes were, he took it. See, this is really relevant here because what he's talking to is Hebrews who become Christians and who are now looking back and wondering if they made the right decision when they're being persecuted and mistreated. Maybe I should have stayed a Jew. Everybody hates me now. But no, pursuing Christ was the thing God had called them to do just as Christ was called to the cross, and the things they encountered along the way, unseen now, difficult though they may be, were all God, of God's plan, which they needed to obey as Christ had given them an example. It goes on in verse nine to say that through this experience, this experience of learning obedience, he was made perfect and being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation. Now, the idea we have of perfect means that it, uh, no flaw in any direction, and certainly that's true of Christ. But, but the Greek concept of the word perfect was totally suited, totally qualified for the function that a person was pursuing. And Jesus here through his experiences and learning through suffering, was being totally qualified in function before God, who he was pursuing. And his function was to die on the cross, of course, for all mankind. And all of this was preparing him so he would be perfect, fully qualified, fully suited, to be a substitutionary death on the cross for all the sins of the world, past, present, and future. He was made perfect. His life qualified him. It completed him to accomplish the task that God had sent him to do. He learned through suffering. He faced it. He dealt with it. He felt it. He didn't just think about it. He just didn't know about it. He felt it. And the scriptures are telling me here it's significant that he felt it, that he was among the people and saw it, and it was with his good friends, and it was with his enemies, with everybody around him. He saw it. He felt it. It was with relationships, flesh and blood relationships, that he had to work through. That he felt it. This morning, as Grandma Walter left the service, kind of barely making it out the door, she said to my wife, honey, I'm dying. I'm dying. She is. Jesus faced that kind of thing when he walked on this earth and he was among people who were dying last with other people. He didn't just know about it. He just didn't see it. He felt it because they were his friends. They were people he had a relationship with on a human flesh and blood level, and when they heard, he heard. He felt it like he never could have if he'd stayed up in the ivory tower. That's what the Scriptures are telling us. He learned by suffering. And he had to become a man with flesh and blood to do that. He became a man with flesh and blood, we're told, to die for our sins. Born to die on Calvary. But he was also born in the course of pursuing his death on Calvary. He was qualifying himself. He was being made perfect, complete, totally qualified by virtue of how he lived his life to die that death on the cross of Calvary. And so it was he became the author, the author or the pioneer of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. This is, of course, addressing the issue of the priests who the Jews, I mean, the Jewish system of worship was just unbelievable. I mean, the beauty of of the worship center, uh, the, the, the beauty of the ritual, the beauty of the high priest's garment. Uh, they were a wonderful thing. And they're not intrinsically wrong. But in the Christian church, God didn't design it that way. Things are pretty simple. Churches today that get caught up in all that ornamentation usually are caught up in some other kind of fetish worship or problem so we keep it pretty simple. (laughs) But we have special times, candlelight services, different special services that, that are more atmospheric, you see. But these Jews were giving up this elaborate, beautiful ritual for something they could not see. They were giving up a priest, beautifully decked out, in a garment prescribed by God, having been used for centuries, a priest who was up there somewhere. Now, you and I know what that means, him being up there. But they hadn't quite grasped that yet. That's why in the next few paragraphs it's going to say, i like to teach you more advanced things, but you haven't got the basics down yet. I mean, you haven't got the basics down that your high priest in heaven is worth far more than your earthly priest in the old system. Far more. How can I take you any further in the faith when you don't have some of the basic ideas down here? Oh, Yeah. He's way up there. He went through the heavens to the eternal throne of God and sits right now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for all the mistakes I make every time I preach. Amen. Hebrews 2.10, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's chapter 2 verse 10. That's not the section that we're on right now. He was now prepared as his life drew to a close to step into death which was the curse of the world's sin in order to made sin a cur- and a curse or in order to be made sin himself and a curse for us on the cross of Calvary. And so the verse concludes Concludes. Oh, I'm way, way off here. The author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Now it's not talking about obedience in the sense of a works salvation. It's talking about obeying him in terms of his specification of how you come to God. And he said to them. You want to know how to come to God? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to obey that truth and go through Jesus. is the only way you're going to get there. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, We're a needy needy group of people. I don't say that to demean you. I could say that to any congregation or people. (laughs) That makes us needy. I mean, think about it. What are your needs this afternoon? I'll tell you, one guy I've been identifying with the last several days, I think of my need... I'm 72 years old, I think, something like that. But Nathan, who's trying to walk again, how old is he? In his 30s, probably? Oh. Huh? Pardon? Glenn, Glenn, I'm sorry, Glenn. Glenn. Can't walk. Can you imagine what he's going through? He's on fire for the Lord. He's going full, full strength. And he comes down with an illness that they don't understand, can't define, and he can't walk. Oh, that would, that's a need. That would crush me. Some of us have needs in our relationships with our husbands or wives. Some of us have personal needs just in our own stability and thinking. Some of us have need of a spouse. I mean, let's just be open about that. We need to pray for our young people. They find the people the Lord has for them. Some of us have a need because we're getting old. Some of us have a need because we have some illness. I think of Sue. I think of Sousley's mother, who Stephen didn't really totally tell that story. Actually, she had a hip replacement some years ago, and the hip replacement, the metal from the hip replacement, is flaking off and getting into her bloodstream, and she's got this particular problem with it all through her bloodstream. And they don't know what to do with that. That's a need. What's your need? Jesus knows about it. He came to be all feeling by walking on this earth those years. I mean, you would have thought it was enough that he was our creator, that he knew all about us, that he was omniscient and omnipotent and all those things would have been enough. But it wasn't enough for our Lord. He had to come down beside us and suffer with us to be Sympathetic, all feeling, all feeling. And that's what he did. Do you have a need? What is your need? I shouldn't ask you, do you have a need? What is your need? What is your need? When we come to this table, we often think of salvation and that we should think of. And we often, as I have at least, sat there and confessed things I'd try to bring to mind that I needed to confess to the Lord that maybe I hadn't done yet or thought about. But you know what else he wants? He wants you to bring your needs to him. He lived that life and died that death to meet your needs now, to understand your feelings now, to minister to you now. Take your Bibles and look at this familiar text by now, I hope chapter 4 verse 14 seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens jesus the son of god though he were a son let us hold fast our profession that's our salvation he's telling these hebrews telling, replying that to us today listen hold fast your profession it's important that you stand by the fact that Jesus' shed blood and broken body on the cross is a means of your salvation, and you are putting your trust in that, not this, but what this represents. You're putting your trust in that for your hope of heaven, salvation. But keep reading. Well, let's start again. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that's an intermediary for us, Let us pass into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. He's the one that's going to get us into heaven. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. Okay, two things here. First was hold fast your profession. Second is come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of what? Need. Need. And we all have needs. We need to bring our needs to the communion table. He lived and became perfect to die this death and to have the experience that he had to have to meet our needs. With a, with a compassion, with a touching, with a feeling. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He feels our infirmities because he experienced them. I'd ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just think for a moment. As Brother Reisinger comes to the lead us in a hymn here. I need thee, every hour I need thee, What is your need today? What is your need today? We all have needs. Yes, sin needs to be dealt with first, but then you can come boldly to the throne of grace and He'll understand your needs and minister to you. Father in heaven, we so appreciate this scripture that reveals to us the great extent to which you went in order to identify and minister to us in our lives. May we praise you for it as we sing this hymn and as we turn to a memory, memory of remembering the death and, and uh, on the cross that makes it possible for us to break the curse of sin. It makes it possible for us to be with you forever as you intercede for us.